0: In early 2020, the election of Keir Starmer as Labour leader was met with euphoria across much of the media. For The Guardian's Polly Toynbee, he was a trusted, tried-and-tested big-brained grown-up. For ITV's Robert Peston, Starmer's triumph showed Labour was serious about wanting power once again. Meanwhile, The Economist called Sir Keir Labour's electable new leader, while the new statesman ran an edition whose front cover was Starmer dressed as a knight in shining armour. Yet despite winning the Labour leadership with a thumping majority and enjoying near adoration across the media, Starmer had only been in politics for five years, with little known about his views or even his career as a leading barrister and later Britain's Director of Public Prosecutions. That is, until now. In his new book, The Starmer Project, A Journey to the Right, writer Oliver Eagleton has documented Starmer's life and deeds, chronicling his time as a law student, a pro bono lawyer, director of public prosecutions, and later as a Labour MP. In doing so, he offers the first account which zooms out, attempting to identify who the Labour leader really is. Oliver, welcome to Downstream. How are you doing?
1: Good, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm very well.
0: Um, I'm very happy to be joined by the Starmer guy, as I think you're going to be christened by the media for the next six months, but that's not a label you're looking forward to.
1: I'm doing everything in my power to shake it as quickly as possible, but I know that for the purposes of this interview, at least, I'm going to have to be that guy. So I'm I'm resigned to that.
0: It's important to say this is the first biography on Keir Starmer. So, I mean, the, the, you know, you could be the Starmer guy for at least six months, a year. I mean, this could be the next, he could be the next prime minister. and And right now, this is the most authoritative biography out there. But you don't seem happy about that, Oliver.
1: Well, I guess the origin story of the book, in a way, was that I, you know, I, in sort of uh, exasperation during the 2020 leadership election, wrote a very brief Verso blog post uh, about Starmer's legal record and kind of holding up his self-presentation against some of the things he had done as DPP and seeing how they compared. Um, And it was on the basis of that, then once he started to really, you know, initiate his Counter revolution in the Labour Party. I was asked by by the the verso kind of upper echelons whether I would mind turning that blog post into a book, and I reluctantly said okay. Um, and I suppose I, in, over the course of researching it and you know doing lots of interviews, most of them over Zoom at the height of lockdown, I kind of yeah, I started to think that there was something worthwhile about going over both, you know. Um, this kind of neglected aspect of Starmer's record, and also over um, the process by which he steered Labour towards a second referendum during the Corbyn years.
0: Let's start from the top. Key Rodney Starmer. What were his politics like as a young man, as a student, uh, before becoming a lawyer, before entering public life?
1: Well, um, as a secondary school student, uh, he helped to set up the, the East Surrey chapter of uh, Labour Young Socialists. Um, and uh, then as an undergraduate, he assisted the striking print workers at Wapping, who were obstructing the production of the Sunday Times, uh, which you know elicited a, a furious backlash from some of his contemporaries like David Miliband, Stephen Twiggs. So... Starmer's politics in those days, I think, were far to the left of, you know, the people with whom he now associates. Uh, And then as as an early career lawyer who was associated with the the Haldane Society, a famous, a legendary kind of communist-aligned society of socialist lawyers, uh, he did a lot of pro bono work, some of it very valuable and admirable for poll tax protesters, for trade unionists, uh, environmentalists um and he took on a number of you know high profile and worthy cases um including famously the McLibel trial the, Eng- the the which was at that time the longest case in English legal history quickly what was
0: that because people always you always say McLibel what was the case
1: yeah so two environmentalists um David Morris and Helen Steele, were distributing a fact sheet about the kind of uh, you know, environmentally destructive practices that McDonald's was engaged in and their animal cruelty and so on. And on the basis of this, McDonald's hired, you know, several multi-million pound lawyers to sue them for libel, even though almost everything in the fact sheet was, you know, bulletproof, um, empirically substantiated. McDonald's thought that they could kind of intimidate these people into backing down from their claims. Uh, And Starmer, to his Great credit, provided, you know, cost-free legal advice to them, which allowed them to take on this, you know, corporate megalith and fight them all the way from the lowest courts in England up to the, the European courts, uh, whittling down their compensation claim to such a degree that it was a, a major victory in the end for, you know, free speech over corporate bullying. So a good guy. A good guy at that time, in many ways, I think. I suppose in the book I try to draw a distinction between, you know, the the political positions that Starmer took at that point in his career and the kind of outlook or impulses behind them. So I think while you can see that there was a clear shift in the position Starmer took, you know, and he did move from left to right, uh, I think there are also certain kind of biographical qualities that you could always see present, uh, you know, even in his early career, that kind of conditioned that rightward drift. Um, so one of them is a kind of intense personal ambition. And that's something that many people I spoke to who have known Starmer for decades point out. Um, he's always kind of on the lookout for opportunities for personal advancement. And with that kind of disposition, inevitably comes a set of conformist reflexes.
0: So he, he identifies as a socialist, that's clear. He identifies as a socialist, I think, even to the present day. I mean, I remember listening to um, Desert Island Discs he did about six months, a year after becoming leader, and he, he quite overtly said, I'm a socialist. But there, there doesn't seem to be that much content within what he seems to understand as a socialist. Is there any indication of that when he's younger? Obviously, he's writing for these journals, and he's a law student, so he's writing a, a wealth of stuff, both within and beyond his studies. But does he make clear what his actual political commitments are as a socialist at this point?
1: Mm, well, I think um, he does in a way. I mean, yeah, I think there's a great line in in the um, Gabriel Pogran and Patrick Maguire book on the Corbin period where they they say that, you know, Starmer's politics have always been motivated more by a kind of inchoate moral compulsion than they have been by a, a clear or consistent politics. Um, and I think that's, you know, that... You can see that and trace that right back to his uh days as a, a lawyer on the London left. Um, when, you know, he he fought a number of campaigns against the Home Office, for example, against the Home Office's decision to deny asylum seekers benefits. Um, and there was a, a kind of moral impulse uh like driving through a lot of these uh these cases that he decided to take on, many of them free of charge. Um but at the same time uh you know he, that coexisted with um both this kind of modernizing ethos um which you know became uh which was kind of tied to and conditioned by like the the broader climate of the new labor government where everything was about you know uh efficiency modernization um and also with this sort of uh yeah Quest for personal advancement, which brought with it, I think, an ability to kind of adapt to whatever the most convenient views were within uh, whatever organization or institution he inhabited. Um, so you see that, I guess, most clearly when he, he joins the police service of Northern Ireland uh, in the early 2000s. Um, and this is a body that, at the time Starmer comes on board as a human rights advisor, is actually facing a, a widespread boycott from Sinn Fein and from the nationalist community, um because there are, you know, significant fears that it's still a kind of uh, remnant of the previous like deeply sectarian uh, police force, and it's resisting uh, a whole number of reforms that need to be made to ensure that it's uh, you know it it serves each religious community equally and impartially. Um, so Starmer decides to join them at the time when there's this boycott going on, which in itself is a kind of, you know, political statement. Um, and then when working for them, he uh, is quite studiedly uncritical um, of many of their policing methods uh, and provides them with a legal cover to, um, you know, to to carry guns, to use plastic bullets, to deploy water cannons against protesters in some instances uh and so you see him kind of shape-shifting at this early stage in his career um and i think you know acclimatizing himself to um the institutional culture of the psni
0: did any people at this point sort of push back on 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 him doing that because you're saying you spoke to people who've known him for 10 20 years was it obvious to anyone that he was a bit of a sort of ideological shapeshifter or or do they give him some leeway and he's saying, Well, look, you have to be practical and I'm um, mm. trying to change the institution. What was the response from from the people around him to that?
1: I think there there was consternation um from his his comrades at that time. There certainly was when he agreed to defend uh, a British soldier serving in Northern Ireland called Private Lee Clegg, uh, who shot dead a Catholic teenager in West Belfast. Um and who was then the subject of a huge media pressure campaign uh led by the Murdoch press to try and win his release uh Starmer was on the team that served as Clegg's defense um and you know kept his cards very close to his chest during that time refused to tell anyone what he thought about you know the question of Irish uh unification or the IRA or whatever but served on this team and eventually did help to get Clegg released and then returned to active service. Um, and there was uh, real sort of concern about that from other people on the London left um, who Starmer had previously been close to, uh, and also in you know the nationalist community in Northern Ireland itself, um, at the launch of one of Starmer's reports into policing in Northern Ireland uh, and its human rights compliance nationalist protesters unfurled a banner saying you know why hasn't there been a proper inquiry into uh, you know british backed loyalist death squads why is the psni resisting the attempts to reckon with its legacy so there was you know pushback um and starmer has subsequently said to journalists that this period of time serving with the psni was very important for his political development because he said it taught him how to, you know, be an insider, how to uh, you know, make change happen within an institution and kind of use its uh its sort of procedures and mechanisms and internal levers uh to to push for change rather than carping from the sidelines like a sort of useless militant. So, um, you know, Starmer himself cites that as an example of uh yeah, how he learned that um you know his his previous affiliations with groups like socialist alternatives were not going to bring about you know the change that uh, that he wanted to bring about
0: so by 2008 he's the director of public prosecutions and for those listening and watching this interview that is effectively the most senior lawyer in the country He has thousands of people work beneath him in terms of who's being prosecuted for what crimes it's the cps and and he's the the top dog there How would you describe Keir Starmer's record as somebody at the Crown Prosecution Service, who obviously has this extraordinarily influential role?
1: Hmm. Well, I guess in one sense, um, you know, Starmer brought that modernising ethos that I spoke about earlier to the CPS and said in an interview early on in his tenure that he was determined to bring it into the 21st century as an institution. Um, And that meant, you know, uh, training up, um, sort of own brand CPS lawyers instituting all kinds of new best practices uh, and protocols to make sure that it sort of maintained a certain uh, a certain standard a certain level of uh, you know sort of legal quality that uh, he felt had been lacking previously um, and many people who worked with Starmer have great respect for many of the, those reforms that he implemented um, but. I guess at the same time, um, the coalition government came to power two years after Starmer took the reins at the CPS uh, and implemented these, you know, swinging cutbacks uh, as part of Osborne's austerity packages. Um, So Starmer had to work alongside Dominic Grieve to implement lots of these cuts, which left legal departments across the country really kind of strained and understaffed. and I guess like so many things, one of the effects of uh, austerity is, you know, that it it means institutions like the CPS can't really sort of operate on their own uh, and need to rely often on kind of the government's largesse, which can erode their sort of institutional autonomy. So I think that uh, alongside Starmer's kind of modernization comes also the the kind of strengthening of the CPS's role within the British security state, um, and its sort of repurposing as an instrument of especially kind of British national security interests.
0: Which he wouldn't view as ideological, I presume. He just thinks that's, you know, sort of upgrading it and good management and good governance. But that's clearly a, an ideological choice, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no. So Starmer wouldn't see that as ideological. He would see that as just ensuring that, you know, as a vast administrative system, the CPS is operating as uh, effectively as it can be. But what it meant in practice was that, uh, you know, Starmer himself um, collaborated quite closely both with senior politicians in the coalition cabinet and also with um, the intelligence services, the specialist operations directorate and the national security agency to, um, in many instances, deploy cPS lawyers overseas to places where they could kind of complement the work of the Foreign Office and advance British soft power. So this meant you know, um, advising foreign governments on how to kind of structure their judiciaries in a way that would allow them to crack down on crimes that were perceived as potentially threatening to the British state, so whether that's uh, you know drug smuggling or migration offenses or um, terrorism, Uh, Starmer, you know, in a sense remade the CPS as a front, um, you know, in the pursuit of British foreign policy objectives. Uh, And for many people that might be sort of uncontroversial if you take this kind of non-ideological view of the British state uh, as, you know, a system like any other that needs to operate effectively in the public interest. But what it meant um, for many of Starmer's colleagues who were, you know, somewhat concerned at this turn the CPS was taking under his leadership was the erosion of its autonomy. Um, I had one source of the CPS say to me that, you know, as prosecutors, uh, our independence is incredibly important. And if we're taking these kind of top-down directives from senior politicians about the kind of work we should be doing, then that's not quite a model for you know uh, a, a judiciary that's going to be able to act in the public interest rather than in the interests of the government. Um, I mean, it
0: also just strikes me as a waste of money.
1: You know yes, the, the idea
0: that, the idea that you've got well, particularly after the coalition, you have um, declining rates of, of of crimes being solved, which at the moment are just lamentable. I think it's seven percent of reported crimes are solved. At the same time, you're spending money on sending lawyers to countries in the Global South, which need resources. I mean, this seems like a questionable allocation of resources in order to sort of project soft power. And now, I know I know liberals love this stuff, but I think if you went to most people on the street and you said, well, we're spending money doing this rather than solving crime at home, I think they'd find it quite strange.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Staffers at the CPS itself found that strange that they were being, uh, you know, told to make these huge cuts in their departments, and meanwhile there were lawyers being kind of dispatched to Tanzania or elsewhere um, to make sure that you know uh, routes through which cocaine is sometimes smuggled are cut off so that it doesn't eventually reach British shores. Um, yes, it does seem like a questionable allocation of resources. Um, But I suppose for Starmer, you know, he was doing this work and then getting called up by Tory politicians who were saying, you know, the CPS has never been so valuable to us. Um, It's really becoming a world-class institution under your watch. And Starmer's response to this, so I was told by people who were involved with this work, was, uh, you know, just jubilation.
0: I find, I mean, the guy is just so full of contradictions. And I think this is another example of it. You know, this is somebody who said they were a Republican and then becomes a sir. Somebody that enters human rights law and yet is obsequious and almost, you know, chasing the um, the 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 respect of the establishment. I mean, he's the director of public prosecutions. There's always going to be an element of that. But like you said, the jubilation word, I think, is a very apt word um, in terms of what's going on here. I, f- I find those contradictions just... So utterly remarkable, and I think that's that's the story of his, of his tenure as director of public prosecutions. You know, he comes in in two thousand eight, and the the expectation is that he'll be very liberal minded, progressive, um, and yet we have case after case where he's mired in controversy. And it's important to say, from two thousand eight to two thousand thirteen, this was this just happened to be a time when. The director of public prosec- of public prosecutions and the CPS were under real media scrutiny. A range of cases. So, so let's start with with one of the most famous. You've already said he was jubilant at the government ministers describing the CPS under his watch as you know world class institution. That seems incongruent with how he treated Gary McKinnon. So, can you talk briefly about who Gary McKinnon was and this episode between Keir Starmer and the US authorities, particularly Eric Holder?
1: Mm. So as part of this work with the CPS International Division that I was just describing, um, Starmer collaborated not only with the British security services, but also with uh, the Obama administration, Uh, most notably its Department of Justice, which was at that time headed by Eric Holder. who was famous for taking uh, an especially hawkish and brutal approach to uh, whistleblowers, um, including Julian Assange, uh, and hackers, including Gary McKinnon. Gary McKinnon was a, a autistic uh, IT expert who was very interested in UFOs and did a lot of kind of independent research on them, and wanted to access US military databases to find information on UFOs, which he wasn't interested in publishing or sharing with anyone, but simply to satisfy his own curiosity. Um, so he gained access to these systems by exploiting their remarkably uh, weak uh, you know, security codes. I think he guessed that the password to one of them would not be changed from the default password and managed to gain access as a result. Um, and when this was discovered, it was a massive embarrassment for uh, the US government um, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, uh, and to prove that they were kind of shaping up and you know beefing up their national security, they decided to doggedly pursue him um, with an extradition order. Um, so Starmer inherited this case, um, and one of the... People high up in the CPS who I spoke to said that he had direct conversations with Holder's team about Gary McKinnon's extradition, and that he pledged to do everything in his power to seal it and ensure it. Um, And uh, there's a very telling episode in um, the memoir of Gary McKinnon's mother, uh, Janice Sharp, where she confronts Starmer about this. uh, And... Uh, and says, you know, um, how can you have no sympathy for my son, who is becoming increasingly suicidal as his appeals are being thrown out? Um, And he's being, you know, pursued through the courts uh, on his way to potentially spend 70 years in an American military jail. Uh, And Starmer says, you know, uh, you're making me very uncomfortable by saying these things to me and uh the case has gone through all the courts and their decision is their decision and i stand by it. um oh, what an awful man. Mm. This is somebody with
0: was it aspergers you said or mm. who was looking for ufo's and they're about to basically die in a us prison and his response is as one of the most powerful people in the british state you're making me uncomfortable.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I is mean, that is that tip?
0: is that tip, and that seems to have almost no self Reflection is that a typical response of Starmer in these sorts of situations?
1: Mm. Well, I suppose it's the you know it's the bureaucrat. Um, it's someone who, uh, at various points in his career, has tried to kind of hide his politics behind process mm. um, and present these processes as you know completely neutral and faceless. Um, and so when he's kind of confronted, you know, by by the the reality of what he's doing, by this mother who's about to lose her son to the American carceral system. Uh, yeah, I mean, he defaults to that completely kind of blank, neutral position.
0: I'm uncomfortable. Well, this guy's about to spend 70 years in a prison. You think that's comfortable? Well, it's not the life of Riley, mm. is it? Mm. And so Gary McKinnon isn't extradited. How does that happen?
1: Yes, so in the end, uh, then it was in fact Theresa May's home office that steps in at the last minute and says that, uh it would have been a breach of Gary McKinnon's human rights to extradite him because sending him to an American military jail would have uh led to such a high chance of him ending his life uh that it it was unconscionable and, you know, uh, against the the kind of uh what should be the legal norms of this country. Starmer um in response to this, um I was told, uh, by sources inside the CPS, flies to America to meet with Eric Holder, um, or at least to meet with his team. It's unclear whether at at this point he had a a direct meeting with Holder, but um, he's keen above everything to assure Holder's team that, uh, you know, this decision is not going to compromise the collaboration between the CPS and the Department of Justice in future um, and the tone of his conversation with them is very apologetic, like, you know, this wasn't my decision, this was taken out of my hands by the Home Office, which had its own political calculations uh, you know, involved in doing this, and, uh, you know, let's not allow it to affect the close relationship that we've established here.
0: So Theresa May did the right thing. Theresa May was well to the left of Zakir of, uh, Starmer. It's basically
1: yes absolutely but short of it well on that on that particular question yes
0: this is my I think this is probably my single biggest concern with Starmer because you can see how he he would be massively disappointing as Prime minister but he would be to the left of the Tories on on some things um you know there would probably be some positive moves on a you know a, at the moment it's a windfall tax for instance on energy companies you could see stuff like that I mean I, so I can see how there'd be Elements for more progressive agenda, but I seriously think on this stuff he could be to the right of the Conservative Party. With the right-wing press coming after him, with these big institutions kind of lobbying him, um, and, and and it feels like people aren't necessarily prepared for that sort of the authoritarian bent of of New Labour to return. Racist as well, right? And, and, and anti-migrant, anti-Muslim. You know, we saw with the with the Phil, Phil Willis, Campaign in 2010 or the Hodgkin by election with Liam Byrne, it feels like a lot of that stuff's coming back to the fore with, with him and the people around him. So, to repeat what I said earlier, this is a, an incredible period for the CPS so story after story after story. There's other cases like uh, Jean Charles de Menezes, um, which we'll talk about more in a moment, uh, or in um, Tomlinson, who was killed at the hands of um, PC Simon Harwood. Is this a lack of professionalism? Is this the CPS as sort of being not very good at its job? Um, and, you know, as we see so so frequently with these big bureaucracies in the UK, they they, they don't really do what they claim to do, and they just kind of amble along, and they don't really want to kick up a stink. Or, or, or is this a, a conscious effort, do you think, under Keir Starmer, that it, it's going out of its way to not to not make any bad news for the government of the day?
1: I think the, the default position of the CPS is not to make bad news for the government of the day. Um, and I think rather than, you know, Starmer being any kind of, uh, you know, particularly hard right leader of the organization who's determined to protect the powerful, I think it was more that uh, he adapted to the climate of the institution itself. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's worth pointing out the gap between what Starmer did at the CPS uh, in refusing to take on these various cases, and conversely taking on cases that were, you know, very convenient for the government, um, pursuing enemies of the government with extraordinary vigor, um, it's I think it's important to uh, highlight the gap between that and how Starmer wanted to portray himself to the Labour membership in 2020, and how he still draws on, you know this supposedly illustrious record of his as a, a good cause lawyer, a defender of the underdog against the interests of the powerful. So so where's,
0: where's Keir Starmer fitting with the story of Jean-Charles de Menezes?
1: Mm. So the initial decision not to prosecute the killers of de Menezes is made by Ken McDonald, um Starmer's predecessor at the CPS, uh, and he uncritically accepts the Met's narrative of what happened which you know involves uh, a huge number of distortions and actually at one point the the destruction of physical evidence that implicated the the uh, officer who shot Demonezes. Um, McDonald makes this decision, but it subsequently goes to an inquest which uncovers the evidence that's destroyed and, uh, and shows through uh, previously unseen, Video footage that um, what the officers said about Demenezes. I think they had claimed that he had jumped the ticket barrier, that he was you know acting suspiciously, running away from them, being confrontational in other ways, um, and all of this whole narrative is completely demolished um, both by uh, the CCTV footage and also by eyewitness testimony. So, in light of that, the inquest overturns um, the judgment of lawful killing that McDonald made, um, and at that point the case goes back to the CPS, who needed to make a final decision on the basis of this new evidence um, about whether to prosecute. Uh, and when the case arrives at Starmer's desk, he simply reaffirms the initial decision that had been made by his predecessor without considering the, the new details that have come to light, and the killers are, are never held responsible. So
0: again, he goes to the easy option. The option that doesn't upset powerful people.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, another similar case was that of Ian Tomlinson who was famously killed uh, at the G7 protests by a police officer who struck him in the back, um causing an onset of internal bleeding uh which led to his death later that afternoon. Um and this was a case where two separate coroner's reports had suggested uh that the police officer was guilty of directly causing Tomlinson's death, but uh, another coroner's report came to the opposite conclusion um, and in fact claimed that it was set off by other unrelated factors. Um, Now Starmer then, on this basis, made the decision that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute PC Simon Harwood, the the police officer involved, um, and uh, only Reversed that decision when new medical evidence came to light that invalidated the the third coroner's report. Um, so you know it's this is a a complicated case, and in the end, Simon Harwood was actually acquitted by a jury um, because you know the the evidential standard needed to prosecute a police officer successfully is very very high, um, and you know, Starmer would have known this as DPP and maybe naturally would have been cautious about bringing a case against a police officer. But I guess the argument I try to make in the book is that, you know, on the one hand, this is someone who said he's always been, uh, you know, zealous about standing up for the underdog against the interests of the powerful. Um, and what you see on display in his like defaulting to the standard positions of the CPS, Um, being ultra-cautious in his treatment of police officers or intelligence agents uh, simply doesn't really fit with that image that Starmer has constructed of himself. Um, And moreover, you know, these assumptions about whether a jury will or won't convict a police officer can often be sort of self-fulfilling. If a police officer is never brought to trial, if that's a kind of shocking and unprecedented thing, uh, then you know a jury will will want a higher threshold to convict them um whereas if Starmer were to treat police officers like Simon Harwood in the same way that he treated protesters whom he believed were guilty of you know violent disorder or rioting or whatever um and you know really vigorously pursuing them through the courts as if they were just ordinary citizens, then you would start to overturn that institutional logic, which tries to protect police officers from accountability. So I guess, you know, my argument is that rather than trying to do that, which would have required like a real, uh, you know, a real struggle, um, Starmer was much happier sort of ingratiating himself with authority and, uh, and trotting out the, the standard line that, of course, we can't, prosecute police officers because it's just too difficult.
0: See, this is what makes me so skeptical about Keir Starmer being a radical. Or somebody who is, you know, okay, not as left wing as, as Jeremy Corbyn, but who will still be quite be still quite radical in the broader context of British politics in the last 15 years. And I think, well, ha- where's the where's the evidence for that? This is somebody who's always pursued the path of least resistance in their in their career. They generally take the easier way out. They're generally quite obsequious to 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 power. And, and so I wonder, I wonder where, where's the record there? I don't really see it. He becomes a politician in 2015. This is immediately after, well, it's the night of, obviously, Ed Miliband doing quite poorly in the general election. Labour underwhelm. You get the first Tory majority since 1992. Immediately have people asking for him to become the leader, to throw his, his hat in the ring what's Keir Starmer or people around him thinking he's now become a politician in 2015? And almost straight away, people are saying that you should be the the leader of the opposition.
1: Mm, Well, he resiles from that suggestion and says, you know, he thinks someone with more experience is needed. Um, But I suppose it was in one way a kind of articulation of that particular moment in British politics that uh, all the possible contenders were kind of... You know, leftovers from the New Labour era. Who very quickly, as the leadership campaign got underway, really kind of discredited them, discredited themselves um, by failing to sort of uh, you know present a program that was half as compelling as the one Corbyn had. Um, and I guess uh, you know, just as in the wake of the 2019 result there was this sense that you needed a kind of -of middle-of-the-road manager to restore order in the party. Similarly, in 2015, when Labour had really undershot expectations, I think Starmer was seen as this figure who was kind of uncontaminated by the new Labour Mm. years um, and had proven his credentials as a kind of you know, operator and administrator working within uh, a, a large, complex system like the CPS, and could apply a similar skill set to the Labour Party. Um, but this—they basically.
0: This is what I find so strange: is they basically want a civil servant to lead a political party. I mean, that's just such a strange. Like the skill set is very different for a politician, right?
1: Mm, absolutely, and I think you've seen that during Starmer's leadership. That you know he's very good at cracking down on the Labour left because he can manoeuvre to get his rule changes passed at conference or on the NEC. Um, And just as he was able to reform the CPS internally, he's been able to pursue a similar project within the Labour Party to marginalise the left. Um, But that's not quite the same as having uh, a sort of platform that's going to resonate with ordinary people. It's not the same as being a national politician. Um, who can lead a party into combat with the government or into a general election. Um, so I think this idea, which was prevalent, you know, not only on the right of the party, but to a certain extent on the left as well, that you needed someone who is a kind of consummate professional to lead the way uh, in the aftermath of a of a complete kind of electoral catastrophe. I think the the limits of that have now been highlighted
0: going back to 2016, he participates in, in the chicken coup, as it's been called, um, calling on Jeremy Corbyn to resign. He, he does it in a quite, <clears throat> sort of typically Starmer-esque, half-hearted way. where He sort of stabs you in the back, but sort of says, you know, I, I didn't stab you in the back. Um, but then immediately after that, and, and look, and in a sense that's understandable, most of his colleagues are doing the same thing. You could say, he sees which way the wind is blowing. What's relatively unique about Keir Starmer is that very shortly afterwards he's made shadow Brexit secretary. And this is when, you know, that is the number one political issue in the country. What explains this incredible reverse of fortunes where Keir Starmer should have been out in the sort of political wilderness, he's called on Jeremy Corbyn to resign, and yet within months he's the shadow Brexit secretary?
1: Mm. Well, from the earliest days, uh, you know of Starmer's parliamentary career, uh, he wasn't as openly antagonistic towards the leadership as many of his colleagues. Um, he treads a, a kind of you know soft line of of being um, skeptical of the Corbyn leadership, but also saying you know it's tapped into a rich seam of disaffection with British politics and. Uh, we need to give this guy a chance, um, even if we don't necessarily agree with all his policies. Mm. Um, So it's that kind of lukewarm approach that wins him more favour with the leadership than many of the kind of out-and-out hostile Blairite MPs. Um, And there's a similar kind of tepid character to Starmer's um, resignation letter during the chicken coup, where he says it's not necessarily that I've lost faith in you as a leader Jeremy it's that you know uh all my colleagues have and so you know collectively you don't have the the adequate support to stay in your position um so there's this tendency to kind of hide between hide behind other people's opposition rather than outwardly expressing his own opposition um and I think that uh combined with then the the party's approach to Brexit um, in 2016 where they wanted to kind of avoid um, taking a clear stance on the issue um, and have a more sort of bureaucratic procedural approach where they would sort of mimic uh, Theresa May's uh, movement and actions on, on the Brexit policy insofar as they could I think the combination of those two things meant that you know having someone as bland as Starmer in that role uh, of shadow Brexit secretary was kind of convenient for them. And also, since he had significant support in the PLP, it helped to kind of legitimise the leadership in light of the chicken coop. I mean,
0: I, I get that to an extent. I mean, it obviously didn't legitimise the leadership, but I get that to an extent, or I get the logic to an extent. It's principally to placate the Parliamentary Labour Party and to sort of rebuild working relations with 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 a certain set of people. At the same time, Keir Starmer had supported Owen Smith during the 2016 leadership campaign. And Owen Smith had said that I think he wanted to overturn Brexit, I think. I mean, it was such a wacky leadership campaign. It was, you know, nobody really knew, but he, he said some strange things. And so you've got somebody who's backing that leadership campaign and then you make them the, the shadow secretary of state for Brexit. I mean, it strikes me as quite a stupid thing to do. This political hot potato, uh, you know, you have to be on top of it more than anything else, and you give it to somebody who A, isn't even that politically sympathetic, but B, has only until recently broadly agreed with a position which would, if enacted by the party, kill you. So who in in Corbyn's inner circle thinks it's a good idea for this guy to be shadow Brexit secretary?
1: Mm. Well, it was reportedly John McDonnell who... When uh, the meeting of Corbyn's inner circle, what was called his strategy group, uh, when that meeting took place, uh, you know, after um, after the chicken coup and after Corbyn's victory in the subsequent leadership election, uh, it was McDonnell who argued that you know Starmer had such a standing in the parliamentary party that uh, it would it would really help to make the shadow cabinet look kind of uh, like a professional operation again, when over the last few weeks you had ministers kind of doubling up portfolios. You couldn't even find enough people to sit on the the shadow cabinet. So they were really in dire straits, and I can understand wanting to reach out. What Brexit?
0: He could have been shadow attorney general. He could have been shadow home secretary. I know Diane Abbott wanted that.
1: There could have been a bunch of
0: very very important promotions he could have had. I mean, he's only been an MP for one year.
1: Yeah, so I think I think in a way that was reflective of how the leadership was seeing Brexit at that time. Because um, it's easy to forget that, you know, before the 2017 election, um, Theresa May had the necessary votes to get whatever deal she negotiated within reason through mm-hmm. Parliament. So Brexit's, uh, or, sorry, Labour's line on Brexit... Um, became incredibly important after the 2017 election when they had to have, you know, their own um, contours of a deal mapped out. But before the 2017 election, um, there was an an attempt to kind of mirror the government's movements just so that Labour couldn't be said to be, you know, not respecting the result or, uh, yeah, trying to reverse it. Um, or uh, so that the the parliamentary party couldn't you know use um, any kind of lexit platform as an excuse to initiate another coup against the leadership um so their approach in in you know 2016 and 2017 was basically to say uh you know if if the government says they're ending free movement then we'll say we're ending free movement um If the government says they want a jobs first deal, we'll sort of reflect that as well. Um, And I think this is where Starmer came in, because he was seen as someone who would be very capable of kind of articulating that line, which uh, wasn't very politically combative, um, which was more about, you know, making sure that you checked a series of boxes so that Labour could be seen to be a respect the result party. Um, And they could hold that line until Theresa May had passed her deal, by which time the Brexit uh, question would no longer be as, you know, central to British politics. And then they could tack towards, you know, discussions about nationalisation and domestic economic management.
0: So is it fair to say that 2017 benefited Keir Starmer more than any other Labour politician? Because it sounds to me that, like you say, it's a bit of a sort of a policy knacker's yard. Brexit's happened. Merely symbolic. Then, of course, the Tories lose their majority. That becomes once more this defining issue, and the biggest beneficiary is Keir Starmer.
1: Certainly, the ultimate uh, beneficiary was Keir Starmer, and uh, you know it. It really elevated him to this, uh, you know, high national profile um, as a result of the the culture war that developed around the Brexit issue. But I guess what I tried to show in the book by tracking the evolution of uh, Labour's Brexit policy very closely sometimes kind of month by month from 2016 to 2019 is that um it it wasn't inevitable that Starmer was going to emerge the victor from uh you know yeah Brexit becoming the the sort of political firestorm that it became after 2017 um I think there were you know two positions in the party on Brexit um and this is not my framing, but uh, taken from what James Schneider has said in various interviews, you know, he he sort of spells out how on one side you have people who think that Brexit is kind of nothing but a catastrophe whose damage needs to be sort of limited and contained. Um, and Starmer would fall into that camp, as would most of the PLP. Um, and then on the other side, you had people in the leadership who saw it as, you know, a potential opportunity, both electorally to kind of reconnect with the constituency that had drifted towards UKIP and then towards the Tories um, by sort of, you know, backing a a progressive leave deal that would involve things like a dynamic uh, industrial strategy and state aid to support uh, industry in these sort of uh, neglected areas in the North and the Midlands. and then also politically to sort of implement uh both, you know, a domestic and a foreign policy outside of the uh order liberal structures of the European Union, um, and one that would, you know, uh be genuinely kind of internationalist in refusing to buy into kind of Fortress Europe. Um and so I guess you had this face-off um which really sort of uh, accelerated or be- became particularly important after the 2017 election between the sort of damage limiters and the people who saw Brexit as an opportunity for a, a left populist program. Um, Stalin's views on the economy, I mean, what are they at this point? Because
0: you have this amazing story that comes out in the Sunday Times, what, about a year ago, where he's apparently having these secret meetings with Charlie Falk, and this is after he becomes the leader. With Charlie Faulkner and Ed Miliband about you know what's the difference between the, the Tories and Labour on the economy? It's sort of economic, you know, economics for dummies or economics one hundred and one. Which would be bad if it was a parliamentary candidate, let alone a leader of the Labour Party. Do, do we know anything about his sort of views on the economy more broadly at this time? Or
1: mm, well, we know that he argued with the leadership about the question of state aid. Um, he cited. Uh, you know, the negative example of like different American states that kind of change their competition laws so that they can undercut one another and attract, you know, investment away yeah. from their neighbors. So um so he was opposed to state aid. He was he was vigorously opposed to state aid um and to any Brexit policy that would sort of foreground it as one of the potential benefits of leaving the EU. Um otherwise though you know he wasn't uh firmly attached to um you know the, the EU's free market principles or to freedom of movement he he said in the wake of the referendum result that you know uh free movement of labor needed to kind of urgently be clamped down upon um and uh and you know and he he claimed that his principal opposition to Brexit was more about, you know, kind of the management of the state, which relates to, you know, the, the kind of political orientation we were talking about earlier. He said he was concerned about its kind of practical operational impacts on the institutions of the British state um, rather than, you know, its economic implications. He's the mo-
0: he, I mean, this is somebody who's trying to make politics as boring as humanly possible.
1: Yeah, it's true. You know, can you imagine, like,
0: if you have him versus Farage? Farage is saying, we're going to do this, we're going to renew Britain, we're going to close the borders, we're going to make your town, look like it did 50 years ago, and then he's saying, well, it could be disruptive for the economic management short-term. I mean, how the hell did this... How is he a politician, let alone leader of the Labour Party? I well, and And more relevant to your book, rather than me just ranting, did, did nobody sort of grill him on these, on these issues? I mean, I find it remarkable that somebody, even to get into the shadow cabinet, Weren't people around Corbyn a bit suspicious of him? Did they not think, look, this guy hasn't got any politics?
1: Mm. Yeah, they they absolutely and Who were they? Were. Who were
0: the people on the right side of that argument? I want to know.
1: Uh, well, I mean, Carrie Murphy, Corbyn's chief of staff, was someone who, from quite early on, saw Sarmer as kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, and when he dissented from the leadership on various, uh, you know, particularly economic questions about Britain after Brexit... She was more keen than anyone else uh, to replace him with an ally. Um, but I suppose he stayed in post uh, in in the run-up to the 2017 election because he was seen as a kind of technocrat who would calm the nerves of the establishment over Brexit, convince mm-hmm. them that labor would manage it better than the Tories, make it less disruptive, um, while also, you know, maintaining a bottom line on free movement. Uh, on all those other things that uh, the government was was planning to do to actualize Brexit,
0: when they say when they say technocrat, what does that mean? Because he's got he's got these six tests for Brexit, which are arguably the stupidest set of tests you've seen in in British political history. Ultimately, he makes Labour's well, policy on Brexit a laughing stock. I mean, he does. It's, you know, we had Len McCluskey on the previous episode of Downstream, and he says, you know, that the the compact that comes out of the 2018-19 conferences are the stupidest things he's seen in British political history. I, I feel like that with Keir Stumm as a technocrat, you got the worst of both, and that he wasn't a technocrat. This man was a political neophyte. He, he didn't know anything about politics. He's a lawyer by training. He's not He's not a civil servant. You know, he's not something that's worked at the Treasury. I mean, like, say, Rachel Reeves worked at the Bank of England. So for, for the Corbyn Project, he was the worst of all worlds because he was neither a technocrat nor a talented politician. He was somebody presenting as a technocrat, but who, who wasn't? You know, this was politicking and political expediency presenting itself as, you know, a bane, moderate, you know, sensible politics, which is what people hate. So I, I feel like there was nothing actually there. And, and And you're saying the word technocrat, and it's a word we hear so much, and actually... Technocrats that you see in places like the UK aren't technocrats because they're not very good at solving problems. So I'm wondering who who in in Corbyn's circle thought he was a technocrat. I don't think because I don't think the response of Labour to Brexit at any point under Keir Starmer was technocratic at all. I thought it was you could say it was politically savvy or stupid, but it was never technocratic. Mm. So who's saying he's a technocrat? Mm. Or is it just people who've come out from the cold? They're coming, and and that's my interpretation of it. Is the Corbyn project is the left coming out from the cold? And they go, you know what, this guy's got a nice haircut, great CV, he's going to make us look professional. That's all it is, which was ultimately incredibly stupid. And so I'm wondering who was driving that animus within, within the Corbyn project? I mean, we know John McDonald was very favourable to him. Anybody else?
1: So maybe it was a mistake for the Corbyn leadership to start out with a Brexit policy that was so moderate, uh, and cleaved so close to the government's own line. Um, but it made that calculation in the context of, you know, the, the kind of ructions of the chicken coup still being really acutely felt and also, um, the, the knowledge that Theresa May at some point was going to come back with a Brexit deal that they thought could get through Parliament on its own terms. So I think that was the the impetus behind installing Starmer, uh, who, you know, wasn't necessarily a very talented politician, who was, who was very but new to, anything. to Parliament. Not necessarily a, a talented, you know, technician either. He wasn't an economist. I mean, Not if you've got, you got
0: Rachel Reeves, who I obviously think, mm. terrible politics, but at least This is a guy who is a a lawyer until 2015. He doesn't know what a customs union is. He doesn't know what a customs union is. He doesn't really know his views on a vast range of economic policy. So I find it surreal that somehow, even now, we're calling him a a technocrat. You know, it's literally just a haircut. You give the guy a receding hairline, he's not a technocrat anymore.
1: Mm. No, I agree. It's those pure
0: optics. and It's it's the purest (laughs) optics. And yet we're thinking it's like, this is really substantial policy. He's not a policy guy. He was a barrister. He's not even like a solicitor, he's a barrister. He's a guy who talks for a living in courts and has to win arguments. He doesn't know anything about, you know, the 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 substantial difference in sort of economic models if we if we're in the EEA or after if we're out of the single market. He doesn't know. Why would he know?
1: No, I agree that there's there's a big distinction between kind of an actual technocrat and the appearance of one, but I guess for the leadership, um, and there was, you know, a degree of uh, unanimity on this question for the leadership. There was unanimity. Um, yeah, there was indeed. In in the run-up to the 2017 election, you know, which was sprung on them and so on, they thought uh, that the appearance of a technocrat was enough to ensure that, you know, Labour's Brexit policy didn't create needless controversy, either with voters or with the PLP. Um, And that was the policy they had until then. They were forced to change tack after 2017, when at that point with a hung parliament, their votes really did matter. And then it became important to say what their actual vision of Britain after Brexit would be. Um, And that's the point at which, you know, this kind of truce, this delicate truce they had had with Starmer as shadow Brexit secretary uh, kind of evaporated because then the political differences between his uh, plan for Brexit and theirs uh, became impossible to ignore.
0: See, we've spoken to Len McCluskey, former General Secretary of Unite, and he told us that he thought a deal was very possible with Theresa May's Conservative government and that Labour could have voted it through and it would have been something like a soft Brexit. And he's been he was quite clear that he thought Starmer was, to some extent, sabotaging it. And you sort of repeat that a little bit in the books. Starmer is the guy who, he just thinks there's nothing to offer from the government. They're not really serious about this. You know, this is purely about optics for Theresa May and delaying the inevitable. And this isn't our interest as the Labour Party. McCluskey entirely disagrees. Where do you sit on that? Because it sounds to me, if Len McCluskey is right... Then Keir Starmer is one of the people who is most responsible for hard Brexit, and not just because he sort of pushed Labour in a certain policy direction, but when there was an actual chance to sit down and agree on a common position, he refused to do that. You know, where where do you sit on that?
1: I absolutely agree with McCluskey, um, and there are several accounts of this, not only his but also uh, Gavin Barwell's in his in his uh, memoir of the period which show that Starmer was more than anyone else in the labor negotiating team out to undercut the potential for a cross party deal on brexit one particularly telling anecdote that barwell tells is uh is one in which he realizes that starmer you know is not actually interested in getting a deal and is going to kind of shoot down any proposal that they put in front of him um so he gets uh, like the wording uh, of a of a draft proposal that Starmer himself has recently written or Starmer's staffers have um for what you know, a possible kind of customs union arrangement might look like, and puts that in front of Starmer and says, you know this is this is our proposal on this front. What do you think of it? And starmer you know, almost like laughs and says, you can't possibly expect us to accept anything resembling this text. And then Barwell says, well, Keir, that's your own proposal. Do you not realize that this is the text you wrote and presented to us just a couple days ago? Um, At which point, you know, Starmer doesn't quite know what to say and kind of reddens with embarrassment. But, you know, that's uh, indicative of the approach he took to those negotiations, which uh, was... Um, quite cynical and unserious, and uh, determined to foreclose the possibility of a soft Brexit deal, so that Labour would have no choice but to swerve towards uh, a people's vote. Which by this time, you know, was was what Starmer wanted more than anything.
0: When did Keir Starmer start to actively work on his leadership campaign? Because I mean, I've spoken to people who they were on the campaign trail in 2019 in the general election so november december and keir was going to marginal constituencies with videographers and camera crew and people thought okay this must be for the, this must be for the general election he's making uh, promotional materials for the, you know the general election but actually they found out this was b roll for his his own leadership campaign video um so we 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 can be pretty certain that he he had in mind a leadership tilt before the 2019 general election, I mean, we, that's pretty obvious, given how quickly it kicked off, how far back would we go when he starts to sort of assemble a bit of a team and really concretely is thinking about becoming the next Labour Party leader?
1: I suppose Starmer's leadership campaign um, came out of a much larger project, which really began after the you know implosion of the the Owen Smith campaign. Um, where the Labour right and, you know, lots of holdovers from the new Labour period uh, decided that rather than trying to force another coup, they were instead going to go away and do lots of polling and really trying to understand the Labour membership um, and what it thought, uh, so that, you know, eventually when Corbyn fell, they could have a successor lined up. Um, so Morgan McSweeney was one of the main uh, sort of figures uh, of this effort who developed this theory that, um, you know, the Labour membership uh, is to a large extent not, you know, committed uh, to either leftist or rightist principles. They They are kind of somewhere in the middle and they have a set of values that if you sort of speak to and activate they can be persuaded to vote from for. They can be persuaded to vote for uh, a candidate from either side of the party. Um, so McSweeney determined that about forty percent of Labour members uh, had this broad kind of disposition, and then you had thirty percent on on either side who were kind of committed socialists or committed Blairites. Um, and it was on this presumption. That then Morgan McSweeney, um, so it's been recounted to me, really identified Starmer as someone who could, you know, follow through this project.
0: So he was headhunted?
1: Um, he was he was headhunted. Um, I mean, I think he he allowed himself to be headhunted and he saw his connection with the People's Vote campaign as, you know, a means of doing that. Um, there's also a strong suggestion from people close to Starmer that, you know. By forging these ties with Mandelson and Campbell and Roland Rudd and becoming their kind of standard bearer within the Shadow Cabinet, he would uh, get a kind of apparatus around him that could then be relied upon when he ultimately tried to, you know, um, capture the leadership. Um, So, Uh, how how substantial is that claim? So, the
0: claim there is that whilst which is something thing we hear constantly right which the people vote <clears throat> the people's vote campaign had ulterior motives for a bunch of people i mean that's quite a serious claim that he thought well even if it doesn't work out we've got the the bedrock of a, of a of a of a leadership in a circle i mean how credible is that
1: mm. well i think it's credible that he you know he knew that he would massively increase his political profile by um being proximate to the people's vote campaign he would uh, form relationships with incredibly influential people, both in the party and in the national media. And also by being, you know, the kind of remainer in chief, he would win favor with the membership who were uh, also that way inclined. Um, So I think uh, there's, you know, actually, there, there can be a sort of false narrative that uh, I think Starmer himself tried to uh, broadcast during these years that his loyalty was first and foremost to the leadership, but his sort of instincts were with the Remain camp. And so ultimately, as the kind of, uh, you know, Brexit gulf opened up and you had to pick a side, Starmer sided with the people's voters. But I think actually, um, you know, by tracing his movements through those torturous months of the Brexit saga, you see him quite early on, um, you know, having dinner with Alistair Campbell, um, petitioning the leader's office to sit down with people in the the People's Vote campaign and kind of trying to increase their access to figures like Corbyn and Carrie Murphy. Um, So you see him kind of maneuvering from very early on. um, And I think he knew that that would serve him well, uh, you know, kind of either in the event that uh, Corbyn won the, the next general election, which, you know, was unlikely. But if he did win on a people's vote platform, um, then, you know, he would be in this invidious position of having to negotiate a Brexit deal, put it to a people's vote, have almost the entirety of his own party campaign against it. And then he would lose, you Mm. know, and Starmer would be at the forefront of that campaign against the Labour Brexit deal. And with Corbyn so politically weakened by that referendum loss, you know, he would have to do what David Cameron did and then Starmer would be in the in the chief position to sweep to power after Corbyn resigned. Um, So I think Starmer saw that, you know, that was a plausible scenario if Labour performed well in an election. And then, equally plausible, or you know, in fact, much more plausible, if they didn't perform well, Starmer would have established all these connections with uh, the Labour right, which would be empowered by um, by Corbyn's defeat, uh, and he would simultaneously have ingratiated himself with the membership um, who were you know broadly Corbynites, but who had. Moved closer to the people's vote position uh, over the course of 2018.
0: <clears throat> yeah, sort of heads you win, tails uh, heads I win, tails you lose kind of position. Which I don't understand why the leadership walked into it, knowing what we do or knowing what you do. You know, you've written this book about Keir Starmer. You, you understand a lot of his personality, his political preferences, etc. Do you think he would introduce proportional representation if he became prime minister?
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, I think on you know, questions like that on of sort of electoral reform, constitutional questions, uh, I think Starmer is in a way too kind of loyal to the British state, uh, and too, you know, keen to be seen as loyal as well. I think there's maybe a false perception that a lot of his kind of authoritarian uh policies now are just posturing that if he were to get into government he would drop because he wouldn't be concerned with winning an election anymore uh but i think in fact you know the electioneering never ends the compromises that you're seen to have to make uh to sort of win over supposed social conservatives uh will continue into a starmer government and you know being seen to kind of protect the time honored um sort of Practices and protocols of the British state against uh, progressive influence is, I think, one of those. So, you know, in in the kind of uh, sort of yeah, in in the sort of discourse of Starmer's leadership, I think any proposal like proportional representation would be too much of a threat. Would would conjure up, you know, the the kind of radicalism of the Corbyn period, and would therefore need to be shut down.
0: Um, So you've got these 10 pledges, which were put forward by Starmer in his leadership campaign. A lot of it's really good. Do you think any of it will see the light of day if he becomes Prime Minister?
1: I mean, he himself has said now that, uh, you know, winning an election is far more important than keeping his promises. Um, And the book sort of goes through which of his pledges have been dropped. Uh, And at this point, you know, it's really almost all of them. Uh, particularly, you know, maybe the most sort of heartrending one is the the Green New Deal. Um, the fact that now, uh, you know, rather than a, a state-led program of kind of nationalization in the service of rapid decarbonization, Starmer has bought into this disastrous kind of market-driven program of a, a green transition where all the funding comes from the private sector and they're basically expected to kind of, uh, you know, innovate such that the climate threat is obviated. I think that's maybe the clearest example of how Starmer's abandonment of his ten pledges, um, you know, is is made kind of to to throttle the Labour left to make sure that uh, none of their policies will see the light of day as part of this ongoing kind of factional war within the party. Um, even at the expense of you know the planet itself,
0: and then their target for net zero. I mean, they're, they're, look, they, there may be an election manifesto in two years, and they say twenty forty or twenty thirty five or whatever. But right now, it seems to be that the target for net zero is twenty fifty, because the noise is coming out from Rachel Reeves is that she says the target is twenty fifty. Presently, from the Tories, we can't meet that because of X, Y, Z. And we know that with Corbyn, the target for net zero, I think, probably unrealistic was 2030. But you could certainly say the early 2030s, right? You could probably get to 90% by 2030. And that shifted by sort of by 20 years, um, just on the sly. And like you say, that's one of the biggest issues of the day. I don't think energy transition in abstraction is hugely controversial. I think people agree with it. And yet there hasn't been that much of a political overhead from the membership. That's what I find really interesting. You know, he's walked away from the 10 proposals, 10 pledges rather, at breaknecks. are well, not walked away, he's, run, he's sprinting away from them. And the membership doesn't seem that upset about them. People seem either ambivalent or they've walked away, but most of the membership don't seem to care. And the counter argument is, well, we need to win, but he doesn't seem to be winning either. I wonder, this is recorded before the local elections on Thursday. You know, what, what set of circumstances have to play out? For that to change, for the Labour membership to say, well, you're not what you said you were, uh, and we don't think you should be the, the party leader anymore. Because Labour members are famously loyal. Um But it, it does seem remarkable. This is the biggest fault fast, I think, in, in British political history. And I wonder what has to happen for there to be a response.
1: Mm, it's a good question. Um I mean, I think... Part of the reason for the membership's acquiescence, uh, you know, was kind of the trauma of the 2019 defeat, um, and the idea, you know, you you hear Starmer being described so often as a grown up, um, and I guess when you think about what that means, you know, the idea is really that in 2019 we had all this uh, kind of th- these childish illusions and fantasies about forming a, a socialist government. Um, and then it was, you know, that disastrous exit poll that really kind of brought us back down to to reality, brought us down to earth. Um, and so I think in the wake of that, you know, lots of members who voted for Corbyn in both leadership elections felt like, you know, now we needed uh, a real grown-up to come in and... A
0: grown-up who wants to... Somebody who wants to extradite people with Asperger's to, well, to die in American supermax That's presence. it, isn't
1: it? Someone someone who says, you know, this is the ugly reality, you might not like it, but, um, you know, this is how it is. Isn't that kind of the function of the grown-up in a political context?
0: Final question. What kind of government would Sakeir Starmer, PM, QC, oversee and lead? What would it be? Would it be like Macron? Would it be like Blair? What kind of analogues could we look at? Biden?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's recently been a kind of instructive uh, contrast with Macron, who, uh, despite being this arch centrist, has proposed a cap on energy prices to make sure that, you know, companies take a massive hit to their profit margins and, uh, and, the cost of living for consumers doesn't rise above a certain percentage. It's still going to obviously hit uh, French people very hard, and there's some electoral cynicism involved in that proposal. But I think it's uh, worthwhile just showing how far Starmer's response to, say, the energy crisis is from uh, Macron's. Um
0: so you saying Macron's the left of Starmer?
1: On that issue, certainly. Um, and I think there's a you know the particular reason for that is that um, Starmer, despite often you know trotting out this talking point about the Labour Party needing to look outward rather than inward, has been so primarily focused on reforming the internal party apparatus and banishing the legacy of Corbynism uh, that you know even sort of very tepid and very popular um, policy proposals like Macron's don't get a hearing in his office um because he thinks that their sort of political meaning would be too close to Corbynism. Um and that's, you know, uh, uh, a meaning that at all costs he wants to sort of forget and repress. Um so I think, you know, the 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 sort of dynamic of star- starmerism is to a large extent this sort of uh, very sort of insular um project within the Labour Party um that's kind of quite sort of fixated on his predecessor uh and i think that tells you something about how he would govern um as you know someone kind of uh rising to number 10 on a pledge to kind of restore order um casting both the labour left and johnson as kind of disruptive populist influences um and leading us on a on a sort of consoling journey back to the political center. Um, and so I guess, you know, that's the uh, a, po- a political mood that's particularly well-suited to sort of, you know, the age of anxiety where, uh, you know, the, the state um, is threatened by certain kind of malign influences, whether they're like, you know, uh, what's called the political extremes or by, you know, sort of, uh, alien influences, asylum seekers, migrants or whatever, I, I think Starmer would, as Prime Minister, represent a kind of consolidation of the state against these perceived threats and enemies. Um, and that means that you know the chances of him repealing any of the kind of uh, authoritarian legislation that's been the flagship of um, you know, Johnson's prime ministerial tenure uh, is very slim. I think that would be too out of step with um, the atmosphere he would want to create of uh, you know, this holding operation, um, the forces of order against those of chaos.
0: Oliver Eagleton, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, Aaron. The book is fantastic. The book is what, like 200 pages? About that. Mercifully yeah. short. You won't have to read about Sir Keir for that long.
0: I think the first 60 pages, which focus on his career as a lawyer, I said this before we started. It's the best sixty pages of political biography I've read in a long time. Hugely informative. That people should read it.
1: Well, thank you so much. That's really too kind. Thanks for having me. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com/support.